This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. Well, today on Dreamland, we have first a very special guest. Dr. Gary Nolan is with us. Uh, second, a good friend. Uh, Gary and I have become friends and have been friends now for, gosh, about five years, I think. Uh, mm-hmm. And um, uh, he is uh, one of the most extraordinary people I know, and I'm sure you'll get to know him. He's been on Dreamland once before on a Christmas show where we spoke very briefly, um, and he has dogs, which may or may not be aliens. We're not sure. Uh, Gary is an immunologist. He's an inventor and a very successful and extraordinary inventor. And out of that world of invention, he's also a business executive who's founded a number of companies. He holds the Rachel Rachford and Carlotta A. Harris Professor Endowed Chair in the Department of Pathology at Stanford University School of Medicine. He is, in other words, as heavy a hitter as we have in our scientific community nowadays, and he is also committed to understanding what is happening to those of us who are drawn into the close encounter experience. Gary, welcome to Dreamland. Great. Always wonderful to see you and talk with you. Well, great. Indeed it is. And uh, we have to get together soon uh, again. Uh, we, it was all too short the last time. Now, It's usually uh, at Esalen, isn't it? it it is usually at Esalen, but yeah, but we, I, I'm going to come up to, I'd love to sit down with you and Jacques again and just over lunch and maybe spend some time together because we, we come up with such interesting ideas, especially when we all get very strange, since we can do that when we're just talking together. And I mean, speculative, not, not uh, putting on funny hats or anything, but speculative. Okay. Now, Basically, what we're going to be doing today, folks, is we're going to be discussing brains and brain differences and brain injuries and how this connects to the close encounter experience and to your lives. Um, And I think I would like to first get into the issues of people with brain damage and people with unusual brain formations. And... Let's talk first about how you you were drawn into this because that will segue into this into this larger question. Uh, how did you first get involved in this really esoteric area of science, and so esoteric that a lot of people don't even think it is science even now? Right. Well, I mean, the first, uh, the, the very first um, entree to it was. You know my work on the the Atacama uh, specimen, that which I showed to be a, a human child, likely preterm or immediately postterm birth, with an unusual number of mutations in the um, in bone forming genes, which probably both caused the preterm birth as well as some of the unusual deformations of the bone structure. Um, so, uh, but that was all done on my own initiative. Uh, the sort of, let's say, being brought to the attention of people in the government um, and the, all the current stuff which is, which is going on 
was uh, really because at the time they were looking for somebody to do a, a deep uh, protein or single cell uh, blood analysis using a uh, an instrument that was actually originally developed by a guy by the name of Scott Tanner at the University of Toronto uh, as a, sort of an, what we call an alpha model. And then he and I in my lab, his lab and my lab worked together to turn it into a tool for immunology. Um, and uh, it, but it, the, the, the utility of it was that it could look more deeply into the immune system than any other instrument, uh, you know, uh, at the time and still today, actually. Um, so uh, apparently when they were, uh, and, well, the, the government uh, had found uh, or had collected a number of patients who uh, had some kinds of injuries, uh, many of which, well, I shouldn't say many of which, well, en enough of which were associated with observations or anomalous objects or UAPs or what have you. And uh, that it was, I guess, worthy of coming and saying, okay, one of the things on the medical workup that we want to accomplish here is to look into the, the blood to look for inflammatory events. Uh, and, uh, and so that was how um, people associated with the CIA and an, and an aerospace corporation ended up in my office uh, and uh, started discussions with me on it. Um, and I've told this story a few times. I think many of your listeners have probably heard that. Yeah, well, let's get back to the Atacama piece. Uh, when that was first found, uh, I, I wouldn't, won't say found, but it was purchased in a bar in Peru. Uh, I had heard about it, and I, I wasn't interested in it because I felt like it, it wouldn't be what it was being claimed to be. And uh, that turned out to be true. But I was fascinated when you took up the challenge of figuring it out. Why did you do that? Because you came from a, such a highly developed scientific background, and here you were walking out there willing to put your reputation on the line, uh, because if you had discovered that it was alien DNA or something, you would have been in a major hot seat. Well, it was, yeah, I mean, part of it was, I can do that. Part of it was, you know, it interested me, and it was, you know, and... and even to Stephen Greer's credit, I mean, uh, you know, it was it, it, it was worthy of looking at without doubt um, because of some of the stories that were associated with it. Um, and so, you know, at, frankly, I thought at first that it was uh, some sort of a, a monkey of some kind. But, uh, you know, in bringing it to literally the world's uh, leading specialist in uh bone disorders, pediatric bone disorders, uh, and his take on it was, uh, thank you, and his take on it uh, was that, um, well, this is clearly, it's, it's human. Uh, it, it has uh, several anomalous features that uh, I can't explain by my understanding of current genetic disorders, but it could be a combination of them, I mean, and he's he's looked at thousands of such things. 
Uh, and But he did list a number of genes that he thought might be associated with it. And actually, some of the genes that he suggest, suspected ended up being the case, so having mutations in them. Um, but, I mean, the, the impetus was partly high risk, high gain, uh, and that, you know, sometimes it's worth doing it. It was a bigger job than I thought it was at the beginning. Um, I think that's probably one of my uh, faults is that I bite off more than I can chew, uh, often scientifically, but that's the fun of it. Yeah, but you're a high-risk, high-gain kind of guy. I mean, that's why you're so successful. Yeah, well, I mean. That's your, that's I, I, your M.O. That's my M.O., I guess. Right, yeah, exactly. So I, and, but, I mean, part of it was, it was I was starting to read things on the Internet uh, or, you know, there was enough kind of noise around the UFO phenomenon that it was like, well, I don't and I didn't see anybody doing the kind of science that could be done on these things. Yes. Uh, to truly answer the question in a definitive manner. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, and as we got into it, as I said, I, I it wasn't I wasn't knowledgeable enough to be able to do it. But, you know. I had started a company that we sold to Roche for $110 million on uh, sequencing uh, analysis of, um, of uh, genomes. And so I was able to bring them in, uh, a number of uh, Stanford individuals, two Stanford prof- other Stanford professors, one of whom was a specialist in South American DNA, uh, the tribes and uh, cultures. Uh, so... I knew then that once we had results, I would have the right combination of individuals who could look at this objectively and give us uh, an answer. Uh, and so that was the result of the paper, which, you know, resulted in the paper, which ended up going, you know, literally worldwide. I was getting phone calls from all over the planet because what better clickbait than alien scientists, sorry, alien scientists, Stanford scientists, <laughs> Uh, you know, sequence of alien baby. Right. The, yeah. uh, and in Stephen Greer's defense, he had every reason to believe that this thing was something very unusual when he yeah. bought it because of the way it looked. So, you know, I'm not, yeah. I'm not trying to. I don't, say, I don't fall through one bit for that. No, me neither. I would have done the same thing. And I would have also been disappointed when the result came <laughs> out. Um, I, I mean, there was a moment about halfway through um, when, you know, I was starting to get some strange results in the sequencing or what appeared to me to be strange results that I didn't understand, um, where I thought to myself, I remember driving uh, down the road one day and say, gee, what happens if this is alien? Yeah, you know, exactly. Then you you're on the and hot seat and you've also made history. But then, I mean, that's kind of the moment when I realized, okay, Gary, let's let's make sure you're you're not the world's expert in human genetics. So let's bring in the world experts, right? I mean, that was why I brought in the world expert in bone disorders. Um, you know, I think good science is realizing what you're able to do, but then having the ability to convince others who are expert to lend their time to a question yes. uh, to combine the knowledge and the best abilities of all. Um, and it was, you know, it was all about getting the, some of the most, what, 
you know, fantastical uh, claims uh, either on or off the table. And because once you get the things that are drawing everybody's attention, it's usually the stuff that's hidden in the corners that is the true answer, is the true, you know, lead. Uh, and right. so um, that's one of the things that I've tried to focus on in my career is paying attention to the dot, which is off the curve. That is, most people would be willing just to pass by as a as a data artifact. And it might be a data artifact, but I want to know how it got there. That is a, a really, it's a great way for a scientist to work. And Free Dreamlanders, we're going to take a little break right now, and we'll be right back. One of the things that you must have come up against uh, is this issue of secrecy, which is so extraordinary. Uh, I have many times in my life uh, ended up in, a, in situations where I was told things I was then told I could not repeat. And mm -hmm. in a couple of occasions, I was attempts made to force me to get a security clearance. Which I wouldn't do because then I would, then other people would be making the decisions about what I could and couldn't say. And obviously I can't do that. And you were brought into this by CIA people, uh, Christopher Green, Kit Green, uh, also a good friend of both of us at this point. Uh, and you found yourself up against a wall of secrecy and beginning to be allowed to peek behind it a little bit. What was that like, and what did you think you were dealing with when you saw, you must have seen how enormous it was and how, in a way, impoverished it is? Yeah, I mean, it would be funny because, um, you know, in, in my stream of science, my area of science, um, you know, when you ask for more data, the only thing that should ever stop somebody from giving you that data is that they haven't published a paper yet on it or that they think that the data needs to be further verified before they, before they let it out. Um, you know, and siloization of data, uh, especially post-publication, is considered anathema uh, and couldn't get you banned from publishing in a journal if you refuse to, you know, uh, share your data or your reagents or your methodologies when somebody asks. So um, being in a situation where I would ask for more data about uh, an individual in a, you know, who was part of this cohort of injury patients, I would just very often be told, well, we can't, we can't tell you where that person is. We can't tell you what they were doing. Um, you know, it's, you know, and so, that was that was frustrating, um, but we did reach a kind of compromise that uh, allowed us to um, to uh, get the the right kind of data into uh, a, a format that could be shared. And you know, because these were patients, there was an incredible amount of HIPAA compliance that needed to be uh, brought to the table, especially since I had asked to, you know, meet with some of the these uh, individuals. And so, therefore, I knew who these people were. Um, 
and their careers might be at risk because they were in some ways breaking their oaths or things that they were told not to talk about. And so uh, for me, that was a little bit of a difficult thing. But I mean, these days, especially if you do the kind of work that I do in the mainstream science, HIPAA compliance is beaten into us uh, with yearly tests of our knowledge. You know, we sit on the, I sit on these online things for an hour, you know, learning and relearning and taking the tests to make sure that I, I know all the ins and outs of what you should and shouldn't say. So, but, you know, I, I, I think that the, the secrecy has merit, but I think what we've seen, I mean, how many years is it now? 80 years since the 1940s, you know, we're almost coming up on 80 years. And we still don't have common discussion amongst scientists, um, you know, uh, about these phenomena. Uh, you know, I think that enough is enough. Yeah, we, we don't just not have common discussion, but we have in the intellectual media or the, the like the New York Times level media, we have a very great level of hesitancy. And, you know, they're just edging toward it and they're the only ones you don't see many of the other you don't see articles searching articles in places like the atlantic or harper's uh exploring whether or not there may be some credibility here even now and the close encounter witnesses are like uh, anathema i mean we it's like we are a non-people uh, we don't exist mm-hmm. there was as you know a big a uh, big uh, uh, show planned this, for the summer. It's the time has gone uh, on CNN. It was completely finished, and uh, you were interviewed for it. I was interviewed for it, and it was a very high level show, and it was completely, totally canceled. Mm-hmm. And what is going on there? What is, is there? Some kind of do you sense, and I know I, this is not a question I'm asking you to answer factually, mm-hmm. but I sense the presence of some kind of social engineering locomotion behind this. It's as if somebody doesn't want any of this to happen, and I'm not sure whether it has to do with us or some other level of reality. It's just extremely strange. No. Yeah, I mean, I, I, don't, I, I don't know. I mean, certainly the disinformation campaigns that we all know exist uh, and have been admitted to be existing. So it's not like it's a conspiracy theory. Um, you know, that's, uh, you, you, you know, we can worry about the tinfoil hats for other subjects, but certainly not that. Um, the hall of mirrors that unfortunately people like Doty helped to create, um, is, uh, is a problem. And I think we'll be disentangling them for decades more. Um, you know, I, and it's, and it's one of the reasons why, and I've stated this a few times now, it's not that I want to dismiss the historical data uh, and or not argue about it. It's just it's not my it's not my specialty. My specialty is is not retrospective analysis. It's prospective analysis of data that we create now that is verifiable. Well, uh, you know, you're, that's just as well, because I don't think, I think the history of this has been lost at, largely, and it, it's because everyone from Arthur Exxon to people we both know now have mm-hmm. told me about Pencils Up, that there was much of this material and still is 
when a discussion enters a certain phase, no one mm-hmm. can take notes, let alone uh, write any 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 anything down about it. Uh, so, I, I think it's a it's a lost history, probably. So you're just you, you're just as well that you're on the leading edge of what's actually happening now, because I don't think you have a past anymore. I think it's been it's been made to disappear largely. Uh, right now, I know that there are briefings that go through material from the past, but I'm not so sure that that a lot of the material, like for example, the entire uh, production of of uh, records from Roswell Army Air, Fo- Air Army Air Force Base and then Army Air and then Air Force Base from 1947 to 1952 was lost, mm-hmm. supposedly, or destroyed. Mm-hmm. Every single paperclip requisition, everything. And when Congressman Schiff told me that he wanted to get this, and he said, you, you know, I said, You're, it won't happen. He said, well, I'm going to mm-hmm. get the DAO to get it. And I said, it won't happen. And it didn't. And I was, I was very sad. Okay, but let's, now let's go now back to the present. I'd like to talk about the defense funding bill, and because there's some major uh, advances in that bill, and I, I know that you 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 know about them, so can you talk about uh, what has changed and what Congress is now make demanding of the Defense Department? Well, I mean, the first thing that changed was, in fact, a couple of years ago with the Navy, um, where they basically put out a memo that said to uh, service members, pilots, et cetera, that, uh, you know, we would like it, please, if you reported this information, things that you might see. Um, and part of that was interestingly driven by a concern that, you know, if a an opponent, right, uh, a global adversary of some sort, not UFOs, or aliens were to make an object that looked like a craft, an alien craft, somehow, and caused it to fly, and not that it was flying like a, you know, 5,000 miles an hour or anything, um, that it would almost be like a stealth approach to do things because pilots would not report it, right? And so that was kind of a concern, uh, one of the, one of the concerns. So they were saying at the first at the first level, well, let's report things that we see anomalous or otherwise. Uh, And uh, and and so that then became, I think, the beginnings of the break in the dike uh, where then more information started coming out from the inside, including the stuff that um, obviously that Lou and Chris had already brought out that caused that memo to to be written. and there just became this kind of groundswell. And I think a really key moment was that 60 Minutes interview where they had the pilots sitting down recounting their tales. And I think the integrity and truthfulness and emotion that came across in those interviews just changed things. Uh, and then that led uh, to Chris and Lou uh, mostly spending time on the Hill. Um, but you know, Chris and Lou will be the first people to say that there are any of a number of people who are still scattered throughout the governmental processes uh, that similarly are wanting to bring all of this information forward. Um, and so 
that then led to the bills which have been put out. The first one, of course, was the 2022 defense budget, which established the UAP task force uh, office or ASWAG or whatever they were calling it uh, that get renamed about five times already now. Um, and, uh, and, and that was essentially saying, you know, look, we're going to, we're going to, this will be the place to collate data and information. But then what was almost immediately observed was that the pushback from the DOD was, okay, well, we see a bunch of loopholes here where we don't have to do what you think you wanted. Uh, and then that was emblematically displayed uh, by uh, in the congressional hearings where uh, the two people who were brought forward, who were ostensibly the heads of uh, service divisions that should be knowledgeable of this, were not knowledgeable of it or claimed to not be knowledgeable. I don't think they were lying. Uh, but it's been this very, uh, you know, purposeful approach by whoever's running things on the inside to put people forward who don't know anything about it. But what I found uh, disingenuous about those two individuals, unfortunately, was that they said things that, impl- that implied in a way that nothing existed, when really what they were saying was, well, the UAP task force doesn't have any of that information, and we don't have that information. The way it came across or was in- attempted to come across was that, that that information doesn't exist, and it's all somebody's fantasy. That and also the impression that's been left in the media that this is all sort of new. Mm-hmm. That, you know, that it sort of started in the, in 2004 with the Gimbel incident, when in fact, if you read uh, the Twining memo, uh, the flight characteristics being described of these objects in 1947 are exactly the same as the flight characteristics seen in the Gimbal and Tic Tac videos. So they've been yeah. around for years and years and years. And Free Dreamlanders, a lot of you have been around for years and years and years too, but you've never subscribed to this show. Uh, do it now. You won't, you won't never hear uh, Gary Nolan talking like this in any other show, because there's no one else who does it this way. And you know that, and I know that, so keep it going. It's not because you get more as a subscriber. It's because you get the site at all, so do it. So now we look come to the uh, Appropriations Act of 2023. Uh, the uh, weasels have weaseled out so far. What has what are they facing now? There's been some major changes. Right. So, um, you know, the questions from the committee, the congressional hearing were pretty pointed. And I think the uh, the two defense establishment individuals and intelligence people who are sitting there uh, were not prepared for the the pointedness of the questions and the clear frustration of the committee members who knew more about what was going on than the supposed experts. And so what ended up happening was, and then there was also a lot of talk behind the scenes that I knew of where people were pointing out how the prior language wasn't really uh, imprisoning the Department of Defense and intelligence agencies into actually providing anything. And that there was actually reports from the inside that some of the, the keepers of the gates were giggling and how they were going to easily, you know, get around this. Um, 
And so uh, I participated in briefings of some individuals on the inside, wrote a little white paper. I mean, nothing extraordinary, but basically laying out the consequences of doing nothing, uh, which is, you know, giving the opportunity for our global adversaries to perhaps get ahead of us in certain kinds of technology or understandings. Um, but, you know, on the positive side, the virtuous cycle of technology development that led to the current lead the United States has in computers and, uh, and uh, other things could be recreated, perhaps by a deep understanding of what these objects were. So there was that kind of tension going on. So how do you accomplish that? So the, the, uh, you do that by bringing down the barriers, by exposing the information that was prior available. So the new Defense Appropriation Act, Intelligence Act, has in it, all right, look, we're going to go all the way back to 1947. We're going to collect the data. We're going to, you're going to give us all of the data, bar none, and if you don't give it, you're going to get in trouble. You're going to give us all of the NDAs, and I found that to be a fascinating uh, strategic move because the NDAs are going to have information on them that says what program they're associated with. disclosure agreements, folks. Right. Go ahead. It's going to say what program they're associated with it, who signed it, and who the authorizer was for that NDA. So it, it basically unveils uh, a program and the control structure around that program. And the other thing that this uh, it says, it's fascinating, is, and you're going to tell us all of the disinformation and attempts to mislead the U.S. public and why it was being done. You know, there's good reasons for disinformation, yeah, but there's also bad reasons for it. Um, and so, you know, those two things at the least were uh, moves to stop, stop the escape routes that had become apparent in the first Gillibrand uh, language. Um, but then they've, they've gone further. So part of the white paper that I wrote, and I don't know that my comments were the instigator of the inclusion of this verbiage in the, in the bill, was I said, look, it's time to bring in academic scientists, you know, appropriately, uh, cla you know, classified uh, information, you know, they, they get uh, clearances, et cetera, um, so that we can, um, you know, bring the, the, the greater intelligence of a, a larger community to the table. Um, and, you know, believe it or not, there's all kinds of barriers to this. For instance, at Stanford, um, I spoke to the deans about this recently, uh, about this kind of stuff. They said, look, you're not allowed to do any classified work. At Stanford. Yeah, well, that's right. And, you know, this is going to be a problem because we desperately need, we've needed better minds involved in this, but they don't exist. You know, the, the people think, oh, behind the scenes are there all the geniuses. This is very far from true. We're looking mm -hmm. at one of them right now, and he's not behind the scenes, is he? And, no, and, I'm not. Yeah, and if you... Behind as you can get, but not, you know, not behind. Yeah, well, ex you're not legally constrained by a security clearance at this time. And I, we have to figure out, it seems to me, a way to uh, draw people in the sciences who are not, or like you, who are not going to be involved with security clearances, but who need to know, uh, we need, 
who need to know some of the classified information. We need another level of some kind uh, of uh, of access. Let me put it that way. Mm-hmm. And I think it's coming. You know, there's uh, the, the the language that will be that has been put in basically tells the intelligence agencies uh, to create a structure that allows um, academics to get involved. You know, appropriately vetted academics. Yes. Um, you know, that will frankly sign NDAs, uh, and, uh, you know, for all the, for all the right reasons. Um, but, uh, basically, th- this kind of language has never been seen before in 80 years of the, uh, of us arguing about the reality or irreality of this. Yeah, they've had completely, they've been completely unregulated, un, uh, they've been, allowed to do exactly what they wanted to do from the very beginning. And yet, you know, uh, Art Exon told me first early on, the uh, he was later uh, com- commanding at uh, Wright Pat, and he was participated in the acquisition of the bodies and materials that came to the Air Material Command. And he was also a close family friend of mine, of my family. And he said early on, uh, everyone from Truman on down knew what we had found was not was not of this world within 24 hours of finding it, and here we are, 80 years later, and we're still in the public space, not sure. Mm-hmm. And when I think of what someone like Stephen Hawking could have done, if he had really been able to think about this, it just breaks my heart. Yeah. yeah. No, and um, you know, it, it, it's a, I mean, it's not criminal in the legal sense, but criminal in the intellectual sense. Uh, to have wasted so much time on it. Um, but, I mean, more so I worry about the careers that were ruined uh, of those people who wanted to get it out and then were shoved aside um, or lost their jobs because of it. And so, uh, you know, I don't think we're going to fix that, nor am I looking for reparations, uh, nor do I think the government should pay them um, necessarily, uh, unless somebody can prove why. I suspect there are more reparations owed than the government can afford to pay, even though it's a very real government. <laughs> exactly, for, enough for a variety of things. Yeah, that's um, right. Um, so yeah. Uh, so we're, we're in a situation now where the door will be opening to the Senate Intelligence Committee, but there's nothing to say that what they are told is going to go beyond that, and here's the problem I see. I've had a lifetime of close encounters, and most of my listeners have too. We are the elephant in the room. And if, say, it becomes evident to the senators and to the, uh, to the intelligence, uh, House and Senate Intelligence Committee members, that what is being hidden is the fact that people's DNA, their sexual material, are being taken, and there is nothing whatsoever we can do about this and we don't know why it's being done or what the consequences are or what the consequences are for the people who have disappeared or the people who have uh, been injured in various ways. I refer, for example, to the Cash Landrum incident where these two poor people who were basically killed by radiation uh, in, in, uh, in, a, in a UFO incident outside of Houston were basically laughed out of court. All of that. 
would mm-hmm. they then take that to the public, do you think, or will it remain hidden? I, I don't know. And, you know, I, I, again, I, I sort of, I'm going to retreat to the, it's not my specialty. There's so I many. I understand that very well. You know, there's so many um, people who've been arguing about these things for decades. You know, one of the things when I would get together with, you know, sort of the, the invisible or now visible college of, you know, me, Jacques, Hal, Eric, a few others. Um, and I would even watch them argue with each other about the, you know, the merits or demerits of a set of cases that I frankly knew nothing about. So I was really just a bystander to, to the arguments. And uh, I just thanked my lucky stars that I didn't know too much about them uh, so I wouldn't get involved in the argument emotionally or otherwise. Uh, and that I, I could just basically lay on the table, these are the things that I can do that can serve up new data that is controlled for, you know, scientific analysis. And I think the position you're in, you should, and I'm, and I'm sure you, you this is exactly what you are doing. You're very much concentrating on data that's available to you now. Um, now, free dreamlanders, we're going to take what I'm sure you'll be relieved to find is our final break. Uh, it will last no more than 45 minutes, um, but it's most likely to last about 35 seconds. So we'll be right back. Mm-hmm. We're talking to Dr. Gary Nolan about well, about many, many things. And one of the things that brought you into this was an issue involving brain injuries. Christopher Green, Kit Green, uh, the, and you can tell us a little bit of how, who Kit is and, um, uh, came to you basically with some, case, some very unusual cases. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Right. So, um, Kit, uh, was a, uh, basically a member of the CIA for a number of years, um, and, uh, is a neuroradiologist, a forensic, um, neuroradiologist. Uh, that's his sort of, uh, say, day, day job, and he's an adjunct professor at Wayne State University, um, with a clinical practice, uh, and, what he essentially uh, started getting involved with are these individuals who everybody else was ignoring or the Defense Department didn't know what to do with them. Uh, and, uh, you know, he's an extraordinary physician and spent enormous amounts of his personal time and, you know, reputational, uh, uh, you know, uh, efforts on helping these individuals. Uh, and trying to understand, and that was, of course, one of the reasons why I was brought into uh, all of this. Um, and so the most compelling data to me uh, when uh, the data, as much as they could show me, was, was brought to me were the uh, MRIs of the, of the brain. And as they've been shown, you know, I think many times now, uh, the white matter disease that uh, was observed in these individuals, uh, which ended up in some of the individuals uh, leading to their death. Um, now, subsequently, uh, and it's a whole other story unto itself, um, 
you know, a number of these individuals who are in the so-called weird bucket of the forensic cases uh, of injury ended up being uh, indistinguishable uh, symptomatically from uh, Havana syndrome, which is, I think your readers or listeners have uh, already know about it, so I won't go into it. So I, I would say that the bulk of the cases were then able, we were able to pass them over to the um, to the government agencies who were dealing with the Havana syndrome, um, which for me is you know part of the scientific process, which is categorize uh, and uh, basically, if you understand what it was, we understood that some of these people were Havana syndrome, pass them off to somebody else who was dealing with it, and then but still what remained on the table um, was interesting because actually suddenly we had injury cases where, as it turns out, there was a concentration of reports within these individuals of anomalous encounters. Most of the other cases that have had heard things, uh, buzzings in their heads and things like that, which, you know, we didn't associate with uh, any kind of electronic attack, which is what we now think the Havana syndrome is, um, by some third party. Uh, and so, uh, you know, so there's there's very little that we could do about the injury cases except try to treat their symptoms as much as possible. Um, but part of it was, you know, to at least give the assurance to these individuals that it was what they were seeing was real to help them get the kinds of medical benefits that they deserved. Um, but then uh, part of the analysis as we were looking at things it became obvious when we had, you know, a number of these scans up on the um, up on the presentation that uh, there was a pattern that we started to see in some of the what we thought was at first injury um, that an area of the brain called a patamen uh, had uh, it looked like damage, and we thought, oh, that's really interesting. There's focused damage in one area of the brain. Well, you know, there's ways you can look at different M MRIs with different um, uh, settings, if you will, uh, that showed, in fact, that it wasn't damage. It was live tissue. Um, and it was, it, you know, it, it manifested as, a, as a, uh, a whiter area, not because it was dead or um, damaged, but because it was, had a higher concentration of uh, neural connections at the head of the caudate and the patamen. And... So uh, I went to almost immediately some friends of mine here at Stanford uh, and asked them, well, what is it in, in who are in the neuro field? Well, what is it the, the, the basal ganglia caudate patamen do? And they said, oh, it's, it's involved only in motor control. And this was someone who had gone to Yale and, you know, undergrad and Harvard uh, for med school. But um, I guess uh, really wasn't up on some of the current literature. Because it started to be, you know, in the literature, it started to become understood that, well, if it's about motor control, you need a feedback mechanism to know where your arm is to be able to put it where you want it to be. You know, I can close my eyes and move my hand and I, I have a sense it, where it is because there's feedback systems within here that help me uh, locate myself in 3D space. Um, 
which means that this area of the brain was listening to a lot more. It was actually listening to things, not just outputting things. Um, and so there became a pattern of, that. okay, this, all these individuals have this. What's special about these individuals? You know, so you had pilots, you had physicists, you had uh, ground personnel. Um, well, the one thing you have is that they're all high-functioning. Um, and it was Kit who basically put this together. You know, he used the word savant, but I think high functioning is a, is a, a better, um, easier descriptor that you don't have to spend too much time defending what, it's, what a savant is. Um, and because uh, a lot of people have a certain picture in their mind of what a savant is. Um, and and then, OK, well, what is it about these individuals that what, why would they have this and what is the what is the purpose of it? And it was purely, I think, by chance that Kit happened to have the um, brain scans of a couple of people who were known or claimed, I'll use the word claim, uh, high, high functioning remote viewers. Um, and so I just, I just remember the meeting that we were at. It was me, Jacques, and, and, uh, and, uh, Kit that were kind of going around on this, and, and they said, "Well, what is it about remote viewing that is high functioning?" Uh, well, it's a form of intuition in a way. Because actually, what we were looking for, to be honest, is a word that said kind of what it is that remote viewing was without calling it remote viewing, and the word is intuition. And then we realized, oh wow, this area of the brain might be actually where intuition happens. And so it only took a little bit of, uh, of uh, Google searches, thank God for Google, uh, to realize that actually there was already mainstream research out there uh, saying that, well, not only was this area of the brain involved in intuition, it was downstream of executive function, was now called by some the brain within the brain. Uh, the executive function gives this area of the brain its desired goals somehow, passes them on. This area of the brain collects all the data and your sensory network of where you are, et cetera, in 3D space, sound, hearing, memory, emotions, and then sets goals and sub-goals of what it is that you should do um, in any given situation. Uh, and so then you're asking, go, well, how does that relate to remote viewing? Well, and if you talk and read about remote viewing, um, and I did a remote viewing once with Ed May, it was remarkable what happened and I won't go into the details of it, but um, it was clear that uh, there were, there are, if you read about all of this stuff, there are visual signals that happen or are seen by some people. And so it's like, okay, I was interested in, all right, this is, this is fine. There's lots of books written about the woo of it, but like Ed May, I was interested in the science of it. Uh, I say, okay, so if there's neurons that are collecting this information, is there an area of the brain that does this? Well, no one's ever seen anything like this, and certainly there's been no evidence, you know, of brain damage that uh, would say suddenly people lose a certain ability that might be related to remote viewing. Um, but if you were to think about it from an evolutionary standpoint, how would you overlay and get anomalous information that is not 
in our normal expectation of 3D of uh, electromagnetic, electromagnetic spectrum into the brain, um, well, maybe you would overlay it somehow, I don't know how, somehow onto the, the uh, already in place visual or auditory uh, networks. Um, and that that would be the way in which information somehow got transferred. Somehow it has to be then turned into a picture. But, I mean, that's as big a problem as a dream, right? That yeah, how I do, understand that very well. How do dreams get put onto your internal uh, viewer, right? You have two, you actually have two visions. You have your vision that we're using right now to see each other, but we can each close our eyes and imagine the other person uh, or any other object uh, in our mind's eye. Right. And well, free Dreamlander. Speaking of the mind's eye, uh, I don't know what the segue is, but it's still time for you to leave, and we're going to uh, say goodbye to you now. And I would like to thank you as always for participating in Dreamland, and I welcome you to come back next week. We're talking to Dr. Gary Nolan. Uh, we've been talking just briefly about this, about unusual brain structures that seem to be connected to things like uh, noticing close encounter experiences, um, uh, remote viewing, and things like that. I was curious about my own um, brain, um, naturally, I mean, because I've had this in my life for so long and so extensively, and so I sent my MRI scans to Kit Green. And he said that what he saw was uh, a high normal m number of connections between the caudate and the putamen, but that the connections were unique in his experience, the way they were structured. And I thought to myself, God, here's someone who's probably seen more brains than most people in, in, in the field. I mean, you know, and he says that. And I, I'm just wondering if you have any intuition about what that might mean. Uh, what, it's obvious it doesn't work the same, and, and I'm also thinking that if we looked at enough close encounter witnesses who have similar experiences to mine, we might find more like that. Right. And um, uh, Kit has told me and discussed on a number of occasions the individual uniquenesses that he was starting to observe, um, which actually led me to the next stage of, uh, let's say, mainstream studies I wanted to do on the brain is, okay, well, how do you define uniqueness, Kit, um, against what comparator of normal that you have, except from your individual experience? Of looking at these things, where's the where's the picture database of what the normal boundary conditions are about what things should look like in the brain? Turns out that there is none. There's only individual experience uh, of a neuroradiologist looking at it and knowing what it is that you expect to see and or not. Um, and so the 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 way to approach your question is to establish a, a database of what is normal. And so that's when I reached out to uh, Harvard Neurophysiology Lab, 
who had a postdoc willing to uh, basically engage in this. Um, and we collected online uh, MRIs that are available to the world at large. Uh, you can download them. Um, and what's unique about these is that there are also behavioral studies associated with each of the individuals, as well as intelligence tests associated with each of the individuals. So there's a, there's a data set of normals, age matched, sex matched, et cetera. And then, but to, to really make it a useful uh, study, we also collected a similarly large data set of autistics and a similarly large data set of schizophrenics. Why do that? Well, it turns out that both of those disorders in a very large fraction of the individuals with those disorders, they have uh, anomalies in their caudate uh, attainment basal ganglia areas, um, which is all about cognition. I mean, part of what the basal ganglia is deeply involved with is, is cognition. Um, and so, well, the other useful part about this is that on both ends of that of those individual spectra, both autistics and schizophrenics, not that they're on the same spectra, um, you know, their only intersection is normal that I'm aware of, uh, are high-functioning individuals, right? I mean, autistics, we know you can be autistic and still socially functioning, but very often they have very unique capabilities, mathematically, musically, otherwise. And then, especially on the schizophrenic side, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's an aphorism. You know, uh, geniuses are often one step away from, you know, crazy um, or schizophrenic or creative. So there's a lot of creatives on, on both sides. And so it was a unique way to approach mapping of not just the caudate patainment, but all brain regions in a medically relevant way that you could justify writing grants around so that we would then, and we now have, a database of what is normal and finding areas that, okay, when the caudate looks like this, we find another area of the brain that looks like that, uh, you know, in many individuals. And we find neural tracts between which are greater or lesser to, you know, essentially handle the bandwidth requirements for information passing between these multiple areas of the brain. And so we wrote artificial intelligence programs, machine learning, to find, uh, to automatically determine the brain region sizes, volumes, densities of the regions, etc. So what Kit did over two years in, by hand, uh, in a double-blinded way, uh, we're now able to do basically overnight. You know, he, he did that, you know, across about 100 individuals. We can do that overnight on several hundred individuals just running the computer program. And it's objective, and it doesn't get tired, it doesn't need coffee, um, et cetera. And so we already published one paper on that. Uh, we've got another one that we just got back um, uh, great reviews on, and there'll be a third one coming out. And, and so all of this, though, is then in aid of your original question. Um, now I can take your scan and say, okay, well, what features are unique about it? Um, or I could take a number of individuals who, for instance, are, you know, claimed remote viewers or mediums or what have you and say, OK, well, all these people with these claims sit in this area of difference compared to normals 
Um, and right. so it'll, it'll, it'll start to, but then it also lets us, importantly, get into the genetics of it. Because we, we know that this, uh, especially the caudate patamen area has a genetic component. You know, uh, husbands and wives, uh, two, we have two sets of these in a small, in a small cohort where we know that the feature is only really seen in about one in a hundred individuals. Uh, so we have a small cohort where we have two pairs, husband and wife, both of whom have it. Well, that's statistically not likely and, uh, and very unlikely. And so what does that mean? These people are attracted to each other somehow, or they're in a limited breeding group, but then also their children have it, which means it's passed genetically, which means to the extent that the brain architecture is determined by the blueprint in the genes, this feature is genetically determined. And if this feature is genetically somehow involved in other kinds of anomalous cognition, um, again, I'm, I'm hypothesizing. So the people who want to you know, listen to me and say that I'm claiming that this is all real, it's just like, how do we how do we walk down a path to 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 explain it in ways that we think we can understand? Um, then that means there are genes that when working in concert with each other, create a network of features in the brain that can accomplish these goals. I mean, wouldn't that be nice to know? Yeah. Even if it's just, you'd be able to. Go ahead. Not only would you be able to identify people who have these uh, anomalies in their brains, but you would eventually be able to understand what they could do with these brains. In other words, what these right. brains, what the world meant to their brains, and and what and how their perceptual systems would interpret data that's coming in from the outside. I think mm-hmm. that's incredibly valuable. Yeah. And you know they are drawn yeah. to each other. I you know that in the in the close encounter experiences there's a very great sense of warmth about people in the experience. I, I know I have a I I meet with groups of people and they're always they're, there's almost a characteristic they're always seem to be quite gentle people. They're very different from the general population in my subjective experience and they they like each other. Once you get them together, we used to have these Dreamland festivals for the for, for people who listen to the show, watch the show, and once you get them together, when the festival would end, nobody wanted to leave. They'd all fallen in love with each other. It happened every time. Mm-hmm. There's something there, though, that you you mentioned the couples that are drawn mysteriously together. There's something, mm-hmm. there's something there that we haven't that we haven't articulated yet, but it is there. Now, I'd like to. Move on, if I can, uh, to th- this question of the presence itself. There is a presence here, of some, and maybe it's very complicated, and maybe it's not entirely comfortable with itself, and maybe it's not even a single presence. What people mostly see are these little gray entities, mm-hmm. and yet someone like our our colleague Jeff Kripal would say that's not necessarily what's there. And I think you have some terribly interesting ideas about this. I wish you would address this issue. Um, So, you know, it's, uh, 
you've probably heard the premise uh, um, as a professor Hoffman about, you know, uh, who doesn't work in this area of, you know, the uh, woo or anomalous cognition, but more in the area of that the brain is more of a filter than a sensor. Um, that if we really could comprehend all of reality, uh, you know, around us, we would see, you know, uh, quantum field structures. And, uh, but that the brain can't handle it. And his premise has been that we only need enough information to survive from an evolutionary standpoint and everything else is extra or we're lucky if we can see uh, anything and that there is no, you know, obviously these kinds of philosophy questions, there's no objective reality. Um, so the idea here is um, that if you are trying to interact, let's say there is a presence and it's trying to interact with you uh, and um, it itself is not material, but it has some capability to either manifest something physical, um, which would be, as far as we're concerned, magic or, you know, uh, you know, witchcraft, what have you. You could do that, um, or you could manifest the belief in an individual's brain, the kind of virtual reality that we watch on, say, Star Trek, where um, as far as the individual perceiving it is concerned, it's real. They reach out and then and they touch it. They feel something. But you can uh, you can imagine creating that um, in an individual's brain if you had enough knowledge of how to play the human brain like an orchestra. Uh, and create what the individual thinks is reality when it's absolutely not. They think they're feeling and hearing something. Yes. And so that, you know, might be an explanation for these things. It might be pure illusion. It might be pure crazy. I mean, I'm, right. I'm still open to all of these, um, you know, including the things that I think that I saw. What did you see, if I may ask? Or do you want to go down? No, I, yeah, I don't mind going down it. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it's, as I said, I saw little beings in my bedroom when I was a child. Uh, and, uh, I saw things looking through the window. I mean, to this day, I, um, as actually Diana saw when we were at a hotel, I wouldn't, I wouldn't take the room that I was given because it didn't have a, um, didn't have blinds on the window. And I just, I cannot, I cannot countenance, it's just a deep-seated fear uh, of sleeping in a room where the windows can be looked through. It's just, it's... You've and been so, touched, in other words, by the presence. Of course By something. Something. And, now, and so, I still don't know that it was real. I mean, it could have been projected into my brain. It, frankly, none of could have been a... And we can't several weeks of, of of dreams. Um, I'm perfectly open to that, but it frankly, I mean, it wasn't. I, and this is it's funny. It relates back to you. Um, somehow I thought it was uh, it was John Mack's book, but it wasn't. It was your book 
that I was, um, uh, I was in a, um, a used bookstore in Palo Alto here and I pulled out your book and there on the cover were the little men, the picture of the little, of the, of the gray right. that I had seen. And I'm sorry to say I dropped your book on the floor. <laughs> You're not the only one. Because I had this kind of like flashback to that event. It was also, I also at this, at that time had found John Mack's book and then was reading all of those stories. And I said, this is just like what I saw, which to me was just remarkable because I, I was in that store in the science fiction section looking for sci-fi books. You know, cheap yeah. sci-fi books. So I was a graduate. Right. I was a graduate student at Stanford. We had, you know, my salary every year was. This would have been 1985 or so. It was nine thousand a year. So no, I couldn't buy uh, even brand those new books. Days, that was no a Amazon salary. Anyway. That was a decent salary. Yeah. But um, so you have a a situation like that. The the cover of Communion is a mnemonic. Clearly. I mean, I did not know that at the time. At the time I wrote the mm -hmm. book, I was, Bud Hopkins and I were agreed that there were probably a few thousand people in the world who had had this experience. We had no idea what was actually going to happen that when the book was released. But I think somebody did. I think my wife mm -hmm. instinctively did, because she's the one who, who called it communion. Uh, she she understood mm -hmm. what it was going to be even early on. Mm -hmm. She's the one who saved that treasure trove of letters that's now at, at Rice University. But uh, let's get back to these little beings, because they play a very important role. But what are they? Are they, are they the presence, the aliens? Are they avatars of some sort? What do we know? I don't, I don't think they are. You know, I mean, so let's just hypothesize. Hypothesize they're real. Um, then what uh, is their, you know, what, what, what is their purpose? Um, you know, everybody's response that you read over time is that they don't seem, they seem more like they're, they're purposeful. Um, they're clearly intelligent. They react but they don't seem to be the ones that are in charge. But there's enough intelligence there for them to be able to do things, right? So some people have said that they feel like biological robots or drones or whatever. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think that that's partly what we're, what we're dealing with. Um, you know, if they're, if they're a projected reality, then you have to ask the cell yourself, okay, well, Who's doing the projection as to why they would make it, make them look like that? Because what information, what are they trying to portray? What is the higher intelligence trying to portray by putting things like that in as apparent minions? Um, and so, you know, you can play that game forever, of course. Uh, so, I mean, if we just stick with their, the fact that they're real, it happens to match the alleged claims that uh, these are there are real bodies of such things. 
around. And the stories go that the internal organs look far simpler than you would expect from a, you know, uh, an evolved uh, being, an, an evolved animal, well, right? Seeing all the mistakes in us, like appendix and stuff like that. Art Exon told not me, but members of my family, or I believe he did, because that's the secondhand information that it was they were like big insects. That that was his impression. He did see them. Yeah. Held one of them in his arms at one point. Whether it was in a body bag or not, I don't know. But uh, so that would be consistent because an insect has a much simpler. Also, if you were going to build avatars, you might very well use that form for a number of different reasons. Uh, it's simplicity. It's durability. Uh, it's um, and as far as intelligence is concerned, we could <laughs> right now put more intelligence in a in a mm -hmm. very small space than you know so that the, the, these things may be highly intelligent but not really alive in the sense they may be bio robots uh, I, and I have such a mixed complicated impression of them I, I couldn't say that's that's what I think they are but I do think they, they are physically real at times at least they're remarkable Entities, but let me ask you this: When I say the presence, I, t I speak in the singular. But what if it's not singular? I know you're aware of Belinda Moulton Howe and her work, and she sees uh, a, a whole array of conflicting species, as she calls them. Although I'm not sure that's the right word. And motives: Are we dealing with a single, purposeful entity here or not? Well, I asked that of Jacques one day, uh, and he gave me the – anybody who knows Jacques, uh, he's, uh, he's quite annoying sometimes uh, in a good way. <laughs> I have to laugh, um, but go ahead. Because you know it's true. Um, it, he gave me the, a, a really a, a Jacquean or Valean answer of, well, it's either one thing or it's one thing pretending to be many things. Or it's many things. So, well, you know, because that's a Jacquean answer, darn it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, but there's, I, you know, there's no way to ever distinguish between those possibilities. It's like one of those mathematical proofs that, you know, uh, you're, you, you can't see outside the system um, because your mathematics just doesn't allow it. It's just, we don't have enough data. And, as we know, with, you know, some of the, let's say, supposed interactions that people have had, people are being, people by the supposed entities are told lies. Oh, all right? the time. That's happened to me many times. And so if you're told a lie, then that just tells you you can't believe anything that they tell you because whatever they're telling you is is really for their purposes only. And what their purposes are are very enigmatic. Now, here's a, another question that I'm sure is on the minds of my listeners. I'm certain, it's certainly on my mind. There has been a very slow process of what looks sort of like a process of acclimatization that hasn't been steady. It's gone in fits and starts. And now mm -hmm. suddenly uh, we had the New York Times story, Leslie Keene and Ralph Lumenthal's story in 2017, which 
significantly affected the landscape. Uh, and at the same time, we are watching our planet begin to become unable to support us to the point where we can see into the future far enough to know that, in fact, it will be unable to support us in various ways over a period of time. I think it looks right now, although this may not be the case, that drought is going to become a terminally serious problem in parts of our civilization within the next few years. Now, as this, as these things happen, there will be more wars. If you look at, I'm just looking at history. I'm not being, being mm -hmm. given any special information by aliens, which I wouldn't trust for the reasons you just said. In any case, mm -hmm. um, all of this is happening. And yet there is one consistent, there are two consistencies in the close encounter material. One is warnings that the planet is in trouble. And two is warnings about nuclear danger. In other words, whatever is there does have one consistent policy. It wants us to survive. Why? I don't know. That, that I would never go down that path. But if this is the case, aren't they running out of time? Because we need something now. Right. So you can only imagine that there, you know, it, that there's one thing to tell the public something, knowing that the public is frankly, irreducibly uh, incapable of hearing <laughs> hearing the truth when it doesn't suit their, you know, daily purpose. Um, but then, you know, there's other ways to approach it, which is to find the right individuals in society uh, capable of, let's say, inventing something, um, you know, quicker access to cheaper energy, free energy, I mean, look at low energy nuclear reactions, the, you know, the, uh, the, the child of uh, cold fusion. Um, I mean, it was just here in Silicon Valley, a three or four day conference, which was not peopled by crack, you know, crack pots, peopled by academicians, NASA scientists, et cetera, all reporting over unity results, uh, of, you know, nuclear processes on a desktop uh, and transmutation of elements, uh, et cetera, is evidence of, um, of something very fascinating going on. So, you know, maybe people were downloaded information and sent off in a certain direction to, you know, to let us think that we learned it all or did it all ourselves. I don't know. Who knows? Uh, what is that in the... Tao Te Ching, the, 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 the best emperor, uh, uh, his, the, uh, the, the, the best emperor is the one who, when he has succeeded in his plan, they all say, we did it by ourselves. Right. Yeah. Right. So that's, maybe they're the best emperor. Maybe that's what you're telling, telling us about. I, well, I've said this in several interviews where, you know, it's the kind of a trail of breadcrumbs. You no no child uh, other than the most spoiled uh, is given everything. They earn it. <laughs> well, yeah, and and that is perhaps exactly where we are, sink or swim. And, um, of course, a guy with a bunch of grandchildren, and uh, in my case, or anyone really who looks around at the human race around us, we want to swim. 
not say that. Well, you know, I think one of the things that's interesting here is, you know, imagine their timeline. You know, maybe their timeline is not just us, but they can contemplate us going away and the next coming along. Or maybe they've got multiple programs going on on thousands of planets. Um, Millions or billions. I mean, it could be endless, the universe being so huge. You know, I mean, from an evolutionary standpoint, uh, you know, why do we have most of the problems we have today? I think primarily because of the, you know, the, the early tribalistic uh, fights that the tribes that won were the ones that could fight against one other tribe. Um, and so the genes that got passed were the aggressive genes. You know, so maybe there needs to be a few cataclysmic cycles uh, to eventually select for genes that uh, and mentalities that are more interactive and less disposed to, you know, blowing each other up. And so, you know, maybe the expectation by whatever this is, is that we do end ourselves. Uh, and but they'll just work on the remainder and uh, and, you know, raise them up. You know, I mean, that's the, that's the best you could hope for, I guess. I have a, a last question and it's a bit out of the box if you don't want to go down that road if it's not I mean it's something you wouldn't want to talk about I wouldn't bring anything like that up uh, even if I could which I doubt I could in any case as I have you have seen and you know there are there's a radio frequency in this apartment which never goes away Uh, Mm -hmm. and it it, it's here oh yeah and it it never goes away. It's on a silent frequency, one forty four point one, and it, it's like this all the time, twenty four hours a day. And with what you know about the, the brain and what has happened to people's brains, would you live in an apartment like this? Especially knowing that the frequency, when I do so much as step out on the deck, the frequency is gone. So it doesn't propagate like a normal radio signal. It's something anomalous. Would you live here? Or would you move? Well, I mean, well, the first thing I would do is is check what the what the strength of the signal is. I mean, you know, I mean, the strength of the signal might be far less than, you know, what happens just because you're near, you know, a microwave in somebody else's apartment. Um, you know, the more pressing question is, you know, if it's not causing organic harm because the level of the signal is not strong enough. Um, well, what is the purpose? Well, the, the signal is, we've already checked the, 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 the levels, and it's, it's a normal level of radio frequency. In other words, this isn't going to burn my brain out. It mm-hmm. bands. But, of course, we don't well, know what the signal is. We only know its effect on a radio. We don't know that that is, a, it is actually a radio signal. You could convince the building manager I would ask him to shut down the power to the building. <laughs> I've done that. And I, I've shut down the power to the to the apartment. Yes, and when the this the, recently when the entire building was in a power failure, I turned it on and it was just the same. Okay. All right. So it has a battery backup. <laughs> I don't know what it is, Gary, and it worries me. But uh, I, I won't get into exactly why that is because we've run out of time together, and I promised you. We would stop at the at the bottom of the hour because I know you have a hard you have a hard, yeah. you, you have to go elsewhere. So instead of going down that road, but I will go down that road, folks, with 
others over time because I, I want to get to the bottom of what's going on in here. Um, I'm a very healthy man, and I want to stay that way. Uh, uh-huh. So, Gary, uh, I cannot thank you enough for spending time with us. I know how very busy you are, and this interview is going to be a, a treasure of the Close Encounter community for a long time to come. And I can only say I am so glad you are with us and all of us who are struggling with understanding this mysterious presence that is in the human world and in our world. Uh, you are absolutely at the leading edge, and I could not be more grateful to you. Well, thank you as well for all that you've been doing. Um, I wouldn't be here without you, as I just told people, because of that book. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Well, the, yeah, the book, the book definitely stirred up a bit, stirred up the world a, a bit. Thank you. Thanks so much. Bye bye. You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. Dreamland is brought to you by UnknownCountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host. And I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander.